A few weeks ago, I was on a train, and the train was incredibly late. It was absolutely packed. And people were fucked off about being late. They were fucked off about having to stand. And they were very fucked off about how incredibly hot it was. The train was massively overheated. Now, I was stood next to the toilet, and there were three groups. One was a group of dressed-up middle-aged women. They were really, really loud. They were heading towards a night out. There was a group of young lads. They were maybe 14, 15 years old. They all had haircuts. And there was a couple. Now, every time someone went into the toilet from those big, round, automatic sliding door ones, the women told them how to operate the door. Now, I don't think this was needed, but they seemed to think it was very important. But also, they moaned about it. Oh, I'm like a toilet attendant, they said about a hundred fucking times. Now, the young lads were furious about the whole situation. Furious about being late, furious about having to stand, and they kept making mad plans, like sitting on the toilet with the door locked for the whole of the journey. And this never happened. Now, a man went into the toilet. The women said, press the green button. Oh, God, I'm like a toilet attendant. For literally, and I mean literally the millionth time. The man shut the door. He then pressed the alarm button. The alarm went off. Everyone thought this was amazing. Oh, God, he's pressed the alarm. The alarm went on for ages. People get saying, he's pressed the alarm. Oh, he's pressed the alarm. He's pressed the alarm. Eventually, the alarm stopped and a voice was heard, obviously through the speaker built into the alarm inside the toilet unit. It said, hello. And I said, hello, I'm having a poo and I'm lonely. I've never stormed a comedy gig like I stormed this. The women shrieked with laughter. The lads laughed really loud and did that clicky finger thing that I didn't even realise people did anymore. And then one of the lads repeated my joke to show his enjoyment. He said it in audible quote marks. He said, I'm having a poo and I'm lonely. Classic. (laughs) Classic. He said classic. That's the best review of my career. When we eventually got to our destination... The joke had been repeated a few times and I was feeling pretty good about myself. The train was still packed, probably even more packed than it was, and I'd made my joke. And one of the women, now stood next to the actual door rather than the toilet door, had to lean over to open the door. And she said, I'm only doing it once, it's not my job. I'm not earning 50 grand and still on strike. And still on strike. You see, That got me, still on strike. She was annoyed that people who earn 50 grand, which is a very, very small proportion of railway workers, were on strike. But the reason people earn 50 grand for working on the railway is because railway workers are organized, because they're unionized, because unions work, because organization works. We're currently witnessing a political moment A moment in which people are starting to realise the power of collective bargaining. People are starting to realise the power of unions. Nurses, railway workers, teachers, firefighters, all sorts of people are starting to realise the power of collective bargaining. People that work for Amazon are starting to form unions. People in Starbucks are forming unions. People in McDonald's are forming unions. Working class people are starting to realise that they are being royally fucked over by late stage capitalism. And they're also realising that joining a union works. Welcome to the No Sweat Podcast. The No Sweat Podcast with Andrew O'Neill.
Welcome to the No Sweat Podcast, the podcast that aims to overthrow capitalism but will settle for a less exploited workforce. Ambitious and realistic. What a devastating combination. We're here to inform you about how shit things are and then reassure you there's something you can do about it. It's like cold water therapy followed by a lovely sauna. I am Andrew O'Neill, stand-up comedian and non-binary dickhead, and I'm joined by the No Sweat team of Nav and Maisha. Hello. <laughs> that, was, that was very enthusiastic. Um, do a happy, can you do what? a happier hello. What? Hey. What? what? <laughs> I'm gonna break someone's ears. Today we're digging into the subject of ethical labels, ethical washing, and the propaganda that companies put out to stop people feeling guilty about buying shitloads of stuff they don't need, and of course about buying the things that they do need because it's all made in the same fucked up workplaces. Now, before my recent involvement with No Sweat, I sort of thought that this stuff had got better because I saw all these ethical labels everywhere. Uh, companies have got policies about their workforce and policies about sweatshop labour. And I thought, oh, you know, the work we were doing in the 90s and early 2000s, that's really sort of paying off. And <laughs> I was devastated to find out that, that is not true. It kind of sucks because you, you've, you've been an activist for some time and it, you think it, it disappears, but it hasn't. So it's just That's like right. shit. You need to keep going, and it's got to keep going. Got to keep that energy and keep coming, coming back and being fresh to the fight. So the question is: Is it possible to sort the good guys from the bad guys and work out which of these ethical labels actually work, if any, and which are just corporate ethical washing? So we need to cover some basics, terminology, and that. So guys, what labels are most often used, and and how do they work exactly? So there's some main terms that we can define to start off. Um, so these are the main things that go into making up these ethical accreditation labels. I'm doing those speech marks as I say that. Um, that we see in shops and on corporate branding. And just obviously a very underwhelming spoiler alert. All three of them have major issues that we are going to break down in the episode. We'll start off with corporate social responsibility, which is CSR for short. This is a self-regulatory business model where companies are supposed to prove that they're socially accountable. For example, taking actions to reduce their damage to the environment or vowing that they're not exploiting their workers and acting in ways to actually enhance their communities and be, quotation marks, good people. There's a big emphasis on self-regulation because the brands are essentially monitoring themselves. We must highlight that shockingly, this isn't a legal requirement either. So, bum, 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 what a shock. So, basically, when you see self-regulation, <laughs> imagine if, <laughs> hey, companies, how about you look after yourselves? Oh, yeah, thank you very much. Secondly, we have multi-stakeholder initiatives, or MSIs. These are basically collaborations between businesses, civil society organisations, and other stakeholders that aim to address issues collectively. So, for example, human rights and exploitation. Um, they are the organisations that bring these various stakeholders together to discuss the issues and agree on a framework to address those issues. An example everyone probably know is the Fair Trade Foundation. Um, and brands often join these MSIs as part of their CSR policies to engage on these specific issues. So with Fair Trade, for example, it's aimed at ensuring that people that grow the products are paid a fair amount. A social audit is an assessment that is carried out in a workplace. This can be a farm-grown bananas or cotton, or factory-sewn t-shirts. 
The social audit is usually arranged by a multi-stakeholder initiative and they will contract a social auditing company to visit a workplace and then make an inspection to check if the workplace is meeting its criteria agreed by the MSI, the multi-stakeholder initiative. A report is then created based on this inspection and will show how well the farm or factory is doing. So to link all of these together, we have companies like Nestle, for example, that are selling chocolate. They want to be seen as doing good in the world. And so basically they come up with their own voluntary codes of conduct. Like again, we mentioned self-regulation. So they are Mm -hmm. the ones who monitor whether they follow their own code of conduct or not. Um, That is basically what they want to see implemented on their farms, um, where they buy their cocoa from, etc. And they list a various sort of corporate values that are marketable so obviously child Mm. labor that's a really important critical sort of um that's a critical labor right violation that everybody is very much aware of and so they'd put a lot of emphasis on getting rid of child labor essentially um i find that really interesting because it's like (laughs) we've decided the things that we're going to show off about (laughs) so like showing here's all the good we do yeah but what are all the bad we do no look at all the good we do that's quite something um and then they'll want to cement this by joining a multi-stakeholder initiative and be seen as getting involved with the civil society groups that are within that multi-stakeholder initiative um and then also just be part of the that in turn be part of the third party code that that multi-stakeholder initiative also obliges its uh, members to abide this is where they will get label on their products to show how irresponsible they are so for example we have the fair trade label we have rainforest alliance which essentially becomes a kind of a coding for customers to see whether a brand is in quotation marks ethical or not um and then through the msi or sometimes independently like we mentioned earlier with the audits they'll pay for a social auditor to go and visit these farms and check whether they abide by these codes and report on whether the farm is good or bad Okay, so that's so that's interesting. So these are the kind of the basics in terms of how these guys are labelling themselves. Um, we should say here, by the way, that we are not singling out Fair Trade Foundation here as doing something uniquely wrong. This is a whole process, a systematic issue that has up since the nineties, and the problem is, and in some are in some cases complicated. But overall, what we're looking at, as I mentioned, are systemic problems. And over the last 10 years, these systemic problems have been investigated by NGOs and academics in great detail. And for the most part, the conclusion has been, they're not fit for purpose. Admittedly, it's all quite depressing, but there is some glimmer of hope. These corporations can change to a new model. We'll be covering that today too. Okay, so that's an excellent overview. Uh, And now, as usual, we're going to delve further into this and speak to some of the people on the front lines of the issue. So let's get into it. So you've both been busy interviewing people on this topic. Who are we going to be hearing from today? So normally we like to speak with people on the ground that are involved in the worker struggle, typically trade union activists and campaigners in the producing countries. But given the research that has gone into dissecting the corporate social responsibility model, this time we're hearing from people that have been involved in that research and their ideas on how we can tackle the problem to create a better system. The first person we spoke with was Amelia Evans, who is a founder of an organisation called MSI Integrity. 
Amelia is a human rights lawyer who was working at Harvard Law School when they first began looking at these ethical accreditation bodies and their effectiveness. So we started things off by asking how the project came about. Yeah, so, you know, this this came about really because a number of civil society organizations, you know, unions and um, NGOs started to contact um, Harvard Law School's International Human Rights Clinic uh, with a series of questions, which is that they were increasingly being asked to join these initiatives, these multi-stakeholder initiatives. And they had this question of, should they join? Because they didn't really know from the outset, was this initiative going to be effective or not? Um, and if you join an initiative and then leave it, it's often seen as a pretty large political signal, like, I don't believe in it. And so they kind of wanted to know from the get-go, like, which ones were worth their time and attention and which ones weren't. And, and so that then started us to sort of like look at us being those at the International Human Rights Clinic at, at Harvard Law School to like really look at this question of well, what really are multi-stakeholder initiatives and, and are they working um, from this perspective of protecting human rights? Um, and can we start to sort of figure out what any of the key qualities might be that make them effective so that folks can get a better sense from the outside about which ones have this potential to do well and which ones um, maybe are, are you know, possibly smoking mirrors. And so I, for one, certainly didn't know what these, what these really were. Um, and, and, and I kind of hadn't realized how prevalent they'd become. But it turns out that essentially there was this massive trend that sort of started in the 1990s when, you know, there was so much exposure and kind of understanding during that period of globalization and the incredible harm that was, was happening as a result of globalization in terms of corporate behavior, particularly abroad. And, you know, there was a lot of advocacy, a lot of naming and shaming of different industries, the apparel industry, you know, firmly within it in terms of the, the labor practices that were going on there, how abhorrent they were in terms of the use of child labor, sweatshop labor, and so forth. But this was not just happening in the apparel sector. This was happening across the board. Um, you know, you name the industry, there was some, almost some kind of expose into what was really going on and how terrible the conditions were for those involved in producing goods, whether that's to do with mining, whether that's to do with, you know, agriculture. Um, and, and there was a real trend, which was these exposes and these unearthings of these horrific conditions would occur. And, um, there would be a failure to get any kind of regulation or international agreement about what to do in terms of the conventional approach, which was a treaty or other kind of regulation. And so instead, all that civil society and these advocacy groups could kind of get as a win would be that they would be invited alongside other industry who, alongside industry, sorry, who suddenly said like, well, we don't actually want this behavior. We, we feel we'd like it to stop. Could you come now? You've exposed this. Could you come and like work alongside us? We invite you to come up with a framework that we could abide by to try to prevent it. And so these, these initiatives sort of emerge pretty organically. I mean, four in the apparel sector emerged in the 19, the late 1990s. And they all were sort of, I think there was a lot of hope at that time. It was like, oh, industry is actually prepared to engage. Um, hey, we haven't been able to get hard regulation in the ways that we would like or anything kind of like more clearly enforceable. But look, there's this promise of potential change. And a lot of the initiatives sort of started to look pretty similar, which is they'd come up with a kind of code of conduct for industry to follow or a set of standards. And there'd be like a governing body that had civil society at the table too, as long, alongside industry. And then some kind of sort of auditing or kind of monitoring system that they would agree to, um, often designed by civil society and industry themselves, uh, for how they would check. And so the question was, you know, wow, there's been this huge number of these initiatives set up. And at the beginning, they were set up really to say, you know, 
as a response to a problem. But it had now been by the time we started to look at this in 2010, that now many of them been around for 25 plus years and there hadn't been any reliable sort of research and evidence into whether they were working or not. And so for us, we set up an institution pretty quickly because we realized this was not just about this question that was originally posed to us of how can we know whether particular initiative is effective, whether we should join or not, but actually there was a major need for like deep research into which of these are working and under what conditions. And basically, 10 years later of my life and many other people's lives, we had done significant amounts of different research, you know, into different initiatives. We've spoken with, you know, over a hundred different stakeholders, hundreds of different stakeholders, including a lot of workers in, in these, in these spaces, but also corporate members and, and civil society. And we had this real insight. We'd kind of become experts, really, in whether these initiatives were working. And we thought it was time to kind of consolidate and reflect on what we'd learned over this decade. And so that's when we kind of looked at things and we put out this report, which really in no unequivocal terms say these initiatives are just as the title of the report says not fit for purpose they're really failing from the perspective of what they were setting out to do which was to protect workers to protect rights holders and to hold industry to account for these human rights violations and prevent them from occurring again so as we heard here amelia and her colleagues at harvard undertook a decade-long study into their accreditation model which was initially pitched as a solution to the problems caused by globalization, which led to the dismantling of regulation and made it easier for large corporations to operate at a global level and basically exploit with impunity. As Amelia said, the result of the 10-year study was that the system that has emerged is, again, not fit for purpose when it comes to protecting workers. She went on to explain how these multi-stakeholder initiatives operate at the factory level, and introduces a key concept. You know, we had six major insights really that cut across all of these um, these different initiatives, which, which as you've said, are really systematic failings. So it's, I just want to really emphasize here that this is a, as you as you've said, it's it's a systems problem. These initiatives just they continuously replicate these problems time and time again. And so, starting with the last one that you mentioned there, which was you know um, around the failure to detect human rights abuses, which is a really critical one. You know. Num- basically, many of these initiatives have adopted pretty similar approaches to figuring out and assessing or monitoring whether abuses occur, which is this model often called social auditing. Um, and it's a kind of top-down model um, of professional auditors who come into a particular place. And there's now been incredible amounts of evidence, not just by us, but, you know, huge number of academics and researchers have pointed for different reasons to why this model doesn't work. And what we found um, is, you know, broadly in agreement with that, but also that this is the central form of, of relying on how you detect human rights abuses. And what it really looks like is, you know, this, which is imagine you're a worker at, at a factory. Um, and what will happen is you have been informed by management that there's going to be an audit of the factory. So management is completely aware that this is happening. These are not, you know, the main audits are not unannounced. They're informed. So your first awareness that somebody's going to maybe come in and ask questions is coming from management, you know, and who's, who is the, the rights violator here? It's management. So originally, so right from the get go, there's this question often in the perspective of workers when we spoke to them about not really knowing whether they could trust these people who were coming in. If they were, you know, friends that were related to management, who was paying for this? Was it management themselves? It was all of this sort of assumption about a relationship, which may be valid, maybe isn't. Depends on, you know, how you look at how really independent these initiatives are. But from the perspective of a worker, you're often seeing them as aligned, right? Because they're coming in 
in with this, this permission. Um, you know, sometimes, not always, there are interviews with workers, but that's often not required. So often it's just these folks come in, they look at records, they look at the factory, and they leave, which is just phenomenal. How on earth are you going to get a good sense of what's going on without really directly speaking to workers? Say that the order requires that there's interviews with workers. Then there's a host of questions. Are you just interviewed there at the factory in front of your colleagues and coworkers? You know, or is there a requirement to take you off, you know, to, to a dedicated space? Are you given any protection against reprisals? You know, even in the best case where all of these things stack up and what we found when we looked at the 10 oldest initiatives and the 10 youngest in, in the, the, of the 40 initiatives that we kind of tracked, we found, by the way, that none of the initiatives had all of the kind of expected good practices around social auditing. They just didn't, they weren't there. So instead what you'll have, um, you know, you're kind of suddenly expected to disclose like, oh yeah, there is child labor. There is forced labor. There is, you know, these horrific working conditions. We're paid less than we're supposed to be. We're forced into overtime. Whatever the nature is, you're expected to disclose this, but you're not in any way, you know, given any reassurance that you know, change will occur. Why? Because the auditor can't promise that. So why would you start to reveal these things which could result in significant retaliation, um, physical retaliation, economic retaliation to you, huge consequences for revealing this really sensitive, difficult, compelling, hard stuff, and you don't even know this person who's come in. They maybe don't share your gender, your race, your language. They may be an interpreter. You think they're related to management, you know, and you simply haven't been even offered any insight as to what change will occur if you do take this massive risk and speak up. So just to kind of, I think it's really important we can kind of talk about a lot of this in kind of like conceptual levels about what's systematically wrong. But I think sometimes just trying to imagine what this massive power imbalance is like and the risks from folks who are working in these factories is really important for listeners and for all of us and trying to figure out kind of what could work and what doesn't and why are these things failing. As we mentioned earlier, MSIs fall under the banner of corporate social responsibility. And we also spoke to Sarah Newell of the WSR Network. We'll come on to what her organisation does later. But she summarised how corporations use this social auditing to their benefit. So what CSR or corporate social responsibility looks like in crack is in the last say 10, 20 years, there's been a lot of pressure on companies to clean up their supply chains. There's been plenty of exposés in all different industries, including the garment industry, um, about the horrible working conditions that workers in global supply chains face. And companies have responded to this by making enormous and expensive public relations efforts to cover up what's happening in their supply chains and to make consumers feel better about increased purchases. So functionally, what it looks like is either a company um, in-house does this in-house or they contract out to one of the many, many um, multi-stakeholder initiatives or other, you know, certifying bodies that exist um, and hires them to do, often it looks like a once a year audit or spot check audit, you know, pop into the factory and produce a report that typically says everything's fine. Um, because these people are, are be, you know, they either work for the company itself or they're being paid by the company. So there's sort of a perverse incentive to return positive results and to not uncover things because no one wants to keep paying an auditor that gives you bad news and comes back and says, yeah, there's a lot of human trafficking in your supply chain that you absolutely need to address. Yeah. Um, and so what it looks like now is glossy reports on company websites saying that everything is fine. And, you know, they have a picture of a smiling woman in Bangladesh and they're like, see, she's so happy. This is great. 
Um, and they, they'll talk about things like access to a complaint line, but they don't talk about the results, of the complaint line, how many of those complaints are remediated and what happened to the workers who called in. Um, they're focused on, you know, well, we take this many calls or, or we make this available to workers. Um, and we've seen things like, you know, making apps available to workers who mostly don't have smartphones, uh, making hotlines in English for workers who don't speak English, just things that are clearly in, not intended to be access and to be utilized. Um, so that's what corporate social responsibility looks like. And it's misleading and confusing consumers who genuinely want to purchase ethically um, and are being told all of these things by companies. And it forces consumers to be fact-checking companies or you know, asking these really in-depth questions, going up against billions of dollars in marketing efforts to try to figure out what they're purchasing. So what we are hearing here is a common theme in the interviews on this podcast of workers suffering and being exploited at the hands of those with power. Essentially, sweatshops thrive because of the power structures within producing countries that also play out inside the factories. But from what we have already heard, it's clear that the sheer power imbalance between the supply of factories and brands, where brands literally dictate the working conditions and terms and conditions with the suppliers, this is the dominant force that allows the continuation of sweatshop labour. The reason why is that we focus, or these, sorry, not we, multi-stakeholder initiatives focus so little on brands. What they're really looking at is what a supplier is doing. What do I mean by this? All of the standards and the expectations around change are really focused on the supplier so and the producer. So it's, you know, the questions are, you know, all about, rightly, there are, these are important questions to ask, you know, what are the conditions in the work? And so there's audits that come out that focus on that. But what we're not seeing is this question of, well, what's going on at the brand level? And, and how is the brand influencing what those workplaces are? And again, going back to this question of like, you know, these initiatives now know um, what's going on. You know, there was a huge study by the International Labour Organization that came out in 2016, you know, really, really well established. It looked at almost 1,500 suppliers uh, in manufacturing and agriculture across the world and basically identified that it's the purchasing practices by brands that directly put pressure on those suppliers to cut costs, uh, which then incentivizes labor exploitation and human rights abuses. And that this is like the a massive driving factor in rights abuses. And in particular, these three practices that we see as sort of going on they stay identified as going on that contribute to abuse one is brand setting low prices um and they actually found in that study at that point and i'm i would assume that it's only gotten worse now that um more than a third of companies that are suppliers you know factories are accepting orders that are below the cost of production and they have to do that in order to get the other contracts later from these big brands because these brands are so influential um, compared to the kind of you know economic power of the suppliers. Second is the short lead time for orders. You know, turn things around tomorrow, turn things around within a month, and that puts all of this pressure on suppliers to cut costs and to make workers work harder, faster, quicker, cheaper. And then the third is just not even having secure contracts. Like there's not often written contracts between suppliers and brands about what the expectations are. And so, you know, what you might expect then is, for example, these initiatives to not just be auditing at the factory level, the supplier level, but to be at also then 
auditing the brand at the brand level or what, what are their purchasing practices? Let's start to disclose that. Let's start to like really look at that. And of the four initiatives that are in the mix that we looked at, only one of the four um, initiatives, which is the Fairware Foundation, did regular reporting, annual reporting on brand behavior. The rest either did it sporadically or not at all. Um, and so that then means that there's a lot of, you know, possibility for what you're talking about to also occur, which is for there to be, you know, one factory that is completely, you know, in the red, it's completely violating standards. And that kind of gets through the mix because there are these other ones that are good that are coming through. And you're just not getting any sense of like an aggregation even or anything in terms of being able to say like what a brand's doing. You know, you just see us focus on a particular factory, but you don't see what what brands tend to have the most egregious suppliers within their supply chain, for example. You don't see which which brands have good responsible sourcing, you know, practices. And so it's this way in which I feel these initiatives are replicating part of the problem is by failing to look, by just putting all of the attention at the factory and putting none of the attention on these big brands who have a lot of economic power and a lot of the ability to influence and change how things are being done. That's that's really eye-opening stuff. So these brands, big corporations, have developed a method to cover up the exploitation in their supply chains and make it look like they're responsible corporate social citizens and they all get a little badge to show off how good they are. All the while, they're perpetuating the same sweatshop conditions that have been going on for the past 30 years, using their purchasing power to keep prices low and thereby oppressing workers and maintaining poor conditions. It's, it almost sounds like a conspiracy, like they're doing it on purpose. Well, it's funny you should say that, as I thought the same thing. So I asked Amelia if this was intentional. Were multi-stakeholder initiatives designed to fail? That's a great question. I mean, I think I think that a lot of people, when they were designing these at the beginning, they had a lot of good intentions. I mean, there was a lot of often, you know, to be honest, a lot of unions were involved in some of the initial creations of these initiatives. So I don't think they came in being like, oh, how can we, you know, crush worker voice? I think they didn't know at the beginning, um, what they were doing. And there was a lot of like, you know, good faith attempts to try to come up with something that they thought would work. What I do think has happened over time is that these initiatives have been set up in such a way that they've become dominated by corporate power and corporate voice rather than worker voice or even civil society perspectives. And so I think that now these initiatives are on alert. They are aware that these approaches aren't working. There have been enough, you know, pieces of evidence, research like ours that have come out, there's been enough conversations with these initiatives that I don't think you can say anymore, you know, like we just didn't know that this was occurring. And so now I think this question is, well, why are they not changing? And to me, the answer comes back to, you know, the, the degree of influence and power that corporations now have within these initiatives. Um, and which just comes back to the fact that, you know, a lot of them are set up and they can maybe from the outside, they might look quote unquote kind of fair because you might say, have, and this is, this is the, I would say the common system is, you know, especially in the apparel, including in the apparel space, but not just, is to say like, let's reserve, you know, a third of the board or say half of the board for civil society and half of the board to be, you know, companies. Well, you're like, oh, that seems, that seems maybe it's, it's fair. Um, so how do you get a decision to go forward? You know, you need a majority. Well, what does that mean? 
That means that you need to have, in the case of civil, say civil society, are all on board about the need to reform and change something. That means they need to get all of themselves in agreement on something and then get at least one, if not often more, corporate members on board for change. What that really means is it's incredibly difficult to get major changes to occur and that actually the status quo tends to remain. This is just really embedded because we've got these different views. Plus there's all of these questions about how honestly often disconnected a lot of the civil society are in these initiatives. We're talking often about larger international NGOs who are doing a lot of policy reform but maybe are not connected to realities on the ground. Um, you know, I'd be honest and say I think that some people, not all, even from the civil society perspective, have just become kind of institutionally captured. They don't like question a lot of this. This is just the best way that they think that they can get things done and they think it's better than nothing. And so the system kind of perpetuates in that way. So you can hear from what Amelia is saying, the MSI Integrity Organization has very little faith in the ability of this ethical accreditation industry to live up to the task that it has set itself up to do, that of helping the workers. And the main problem that she identifies is that it is the workers themselves that are missing from the process, something we were all in complete agreement with. Um, I think some of the other examples for us of, of, of key insights across the board that you've raised, you know, one is just this really what we've sort of seen as a, a failure to include rights holders, by which I mean sort of workers, in the way that initiatives are governed and designed. So, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of these initiatives, they came out of this period in the 90s of civil society and NGOs kind of calling out problems. And it tended to be civil society then alongside companies who were involved in the way that these initiatives were designed, who came up with these like social auditing and other structures, and then who continued to govern it. What you don't see, or is very rare to see, is workers themselves actually being involved in the way that these initiatives are designed the way they're being implemented and the way they're being governed, the way they're actually, you know, making decisions about whether you change things or not. Um, of, of all of those in our like, database, only 13% had like a worker or a rights holder involved. And when you look at who that is, it tends to often be someone from the global north, maybe a one-off union sort of voice, but very rarely do, are we seeing what we would say would be really important to these things being effective, which is like a deep set of relationships and inclusion of the people whose lives are on the line, who understand best about sort of when they feel comfortable reporting violations and when they don't. Um, and so that is, a, again, a systematic failing, is just the failure to center and include rights holders in the, the, the government uh, governance and, and, and implementation and design of these initiatives. I could kind of keep going and systematically hit through all of the reasons why um, why initiatives are, are sort of failing, but it kind of, if you imagine any part, honestly, of an initiative, things like, oh, what's the complaints mechanism? What's the ability for anyone to kind of file a grievance? There's, there's, a, there's a systematic failing there, you know, which is that these things, again, tend to be top down. They tend to like, uh, you know, just be complaints portals on a website of the initiative that workers or communities may not be aware of. You know, they may not even know that their factory is supposedly covered by one of these initiatives because it's not required that they're informed about this. Um, you know, and let alone that, that complaints mechanism being in the local language or otherwise accessible, like these things are often sort of so far removed. So we're just seeing a failure to reflect good practice. You know, uh, I think we see sort of the standards and the ways in which the actual codes of conduct that are being set up are often failing to reflect the most important issues from the perspective of workers. And so if I was to point to just one simple catch-all systematic failing of initiatives from the perspective, it's like 
the way in which they've been very top down and continue to be top down and fail to center worker voice and worker understanding and worker power in the way that they're designed, governed and operated. That really is the most fundamental thing because it affects every way that they are implemented in the ground and in the factory. Amida's emphasis on involving workers in determining their own working conditions brings us to the second half of this podcast. We always say that we want to offer some positive solutions, especially when we are looking at such systemic failures in the industry. So what is the alternative? Well, that is where Sarah comes in. So my name is Sarah Newell. I'm the Director of Transnational Strategies at the Worker-Driven Social Responsibility Network. Um, We're a network that connects groups all over the world. I'm personally based in Los Angeles. Um, And I've been here for three years, mostly helping groups explore the worker-driven social responsibility model and talking with lots of folks about what that model looks like. The network itself was created in 2015 as a collaboration between the Worker Rights Consortium um, and the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, which runs the Fair Food Program in the United States, which is a worker-driven social responsibility program focused on tomatoes and their agricultural products with farm workers. So both WRC and CIW were working on this model in totally different contexts, one in Bangladesh in the garment industry and one in the Southwestern United States with farm workers. Um, but they were doing essentially the same thing. The programs were using, excuse me, using the same economic levers to be able to um, enact change in the workplaces. And so they came together to give the model a name and to create the WSR network which serves as a resource for groups who are interested in the program um, and also, you know, works to help people understand the difference between corporate social responsibility and worker-driven social responsibility. And we do education work around that with lots of different groups as well. Worker-driven social responsibility is an alternative to corporate social responsibility rather than social auditing carried out by third-party organisations like MSIs. It puts workers in the driving seat. This way, the workers can address firsthand what needs to be implemented and maintained to be kept safe and happy in their workplace. And they aren't relying on strangers that are paid by their bosses to be their voice. Any corporate commitment that is made without a way to independently verify it is frankly useless because there's no laws around that. Companies can say anything um, and not follow through on it. And there's sort of no recompense for that without without an independent monitoring body. So, so those components has to have a worker education component, like we talked about. And then at the core of it is a binding agreement with buyers at the top of the supply chain that compels them to use their economic leverage to enforce the program. So to stop doing business with factories or farms or you know whatever it may be in the supply chain who don't comply with the program um, and improve those conditions. And then importantly with that, the buyers have to afford those suppliers, the farms, the factories, the financial capacity to comply with the program. So it's not passing the burden on entirely. It's recognizing that the buyers are the ones who exert downward price pressure you put that squeeze on the middlemen, giving them, you know, forcing suppliers to compete to, for um, the cost as little as possible to get the contracts. So that price pressure has to be relieved so that folks can actually have the money to remediate things. So in the case of the Bangladesh Accord, you know, we're talking about physical safety. We're talking about actually the money to improve factories being a key part of the program. Here we introduce a term that doesn't come up when we talk about MSIs. 
That term is binding. We asked Sarah to explain exactly what that means. Let's take a brand, for example, so we're not being so abstract. So Uniqlo signs contracts with every person in its supply chain, you know, whoever they're buying the cotton from, whoever it's doing the shipping, except for the workers who make their clothes. It's kind of a fascinating way that the buyers have set up the global supply chain so that they don't actually ever sign paperwork with the people who physically create their product. So what this does is create a contract between those buyers and those workers to say, these are the terms of the program. If we cannot change things, if if the, the suppliers are not working with us, the factory owners are not allowing us to, you know, uh, bear out this code of conduct to be real, you have to stop doing business with them. Because really the only thing we've found that can compel real change is the people with the money saying this needs to happen. When con- when corporations tell consumers, you know, this is what's important to us, living wages are important to us, safe factories are important to us, they are not passing that same message onto their suppliers. They're still telling their suppliers, please bring me the lowest possible cost or I will move my contract away. It's only when we connect those things and the buyers say, produce this ethically or I will take your contract away that we're at it. And I'm going to provide you with the financial capacity to do that. We're able to see real change happen. Well, this is fascinating. And it's something that I've not come across before. Are there any examples of this in practice? So this is a relatively new concept and hasn't yet been widely implemented in the garment industry. But there are a few key examples. One that many people will have heard of, but may not realise that it's an example of a WSR agreement, is the Bangladesh Accord on Fire and Building Safety, which is now referred to as the International Accord. This was developed just after Rana Plaza collapse in 2013. The Bangladesh Accord covered 190 brands, 1,600 factories, more than 2 million workers in this enormous worker-driven social responsibility program that had fire, building, and electrical safety inspections at all of these factories, uncovered and then remediated almost 130,000 safety violations that were found. And this all happened after the Rana Plaza building collapse in 2013, which sort of compelled brands to actually do something about the safety crisis in Bangladesh. And now it, it it's a completely different industry after all these years. And the Bangladesh Accord has now become the International Safety Accord and is looking at expansion to new countries, which is really exciting because the safety crisis, you know, the Rana Plaza collapse captured the attention of the world, but there are factory safety issues just like that all over the world in different garment factories. And it's just a matter of time until it happens again somewhere else. Another example connects to our previous episode on gender-based violence. In a similar way to how the TTCU were able to get H&M to sign a contract to protect women workers following the murder of Jasri, in the African nation of Lesotho, Workers recently negotiated and signed a WSR agreement to tackle issues of sexual harassment and gender-based violence at a large denim manufacturer. So there is also a program in Lesotho, um, an agreement that specifically addresses gender-based violence in uh, the set of five factories covering about 10,000 workers. Lesotho is a small country in southern Africa. And, you know, It's a very interesting case because the unions worked with the Worker Rights Consortium, we talked about earlier, to 
document some just horrific sexual harassment, sexual violence, and other forms of gender-based violence that were endemic to the factory and that the unions had been struggling against for so long together with women's groups. Um, but only when this investigation was published and publicized in Western media and folks started paying attention to it and asking which brands were sourcing from this factory, was there enough pressure to bring brands to the table to negotiate a worker-driven social responsibility agreement to cover the factory. So now there's one in place. Um, the buyers were Levi's, Children's Place, and Contour Brands. And there's an agreement now that has a complaint mechanism, just like the one in the Fair Food Program, which has been really successful at addressing uh, sexual violence, which is also a huge issue in the tomato fields here in the United States. Um, and so in under this program, any worker who experiences harassment or coercion has the right to file a complaint with the independent monitoring body like we talked about, which investigates the complaint and imposes remedies. And then there's you know plenty of anti-retaliation provisions um, so that people feel safe to come forward. And, you know, I think it's important to note when we're talking about something like gender-based violence, it, it really differs from something like factory and building safety where, you know, you, you see a crack in the wall, a qualified engineer comes and says that crack is really bad. Here's how we need to fix it. And then you move forward on that. Something like changing the culture of a workplace where gender-based violence has been an absolute fact where the male managers have been just exerting this abuse over all of these young women for so many years. It really takes time to create trust and to create an environment where workers see that this is a safe place to report concerns. There will actually be remedy for concerns. And I look to the Fair Food Program, it's, you can go through their data because uh, these programs are transparent and you can look at how there's an increase in the number of complaints that come in as the after the first few years of the program. It can be relatively low at first and that doesn't indicate that there's not a huge issue there. It indicates that people aren't sure if they can trust this, if this is actually going to work for them. People have had their time wasted by calling into those ridiculous hotlines and leaving a message and never hearing anything back and they don't want to do that again because it's taking on risk, because these are dealing with sensitive and painful issues. There's so many reasons. So with the Lesotho Agreement, I think it's, it's you know, tackling such intense issues. And it's been quite a process to, you know, start to change the culture of that workplace. And I'm, I'm interested to see more. And I think it's it points to the urgency of starting these kinds of programs in so many more workplaces. Now, obviously, this being a no-set podcast, our focus is on the garment industry, but it's important to stress that this model has been applied to other industries. A good example is a Milk with Dignity agreement that was signed with Ben & Jerry's. And there's a number of other interesting initiatives happening in other industries, as Sarah explains. So we have um, a new program that's launched recently called the Building Dignity and Respect Program that's in the construction industry in the United States that are, it's campaigning to get the first um, the first developer to sign on to the program. And that was, you know, quite a collaboration behind the scenes with many people with lots of years of experience figuring out, okay, construction looks very different from the garment industry, very different from agriculture. It's a whole different world. Um, and especially with the role of public procurement and the role that government plays in that industry. Um, it's It's been a journey to figure out what that will look like. 
There's a new project we're working on now where the Fair Food Program is collaborating with the International Transport Federation and the University of Nottingham Wrights Lab to look at adapting WSR programs for the UK fishing industry, where there's just been so much abuse documented for years. And that'll be an interesting adventure too, because there's a whole other set of problems that come into play when you put folks out on a boat away from shore. Um, there's technological issues. There's know um all kinds of different migration issues that come into issue that come into play that are different from how things work in the united states so every industry looks completely different um the the abuse looks different the structure of the supply chain is different the people who hold the power are different the role of the suppliers are different um, and a lot of the work we do at the WSR network is meeting with worker groups and talking about and thinking about how this effective model can be adapted to work in that industry. It's all a challenge to figure out how this is going to work. And what we've found is as long as the core elements are in place and we can find a way for those core elements that we talked about to be in place, the model will be effective. So it's just a matter of figuring out how to do that. So. Worker-driven responsibility is already out here challenging the failed model of corporate social responsibility. Amelia from MSI Integrity laid out the reasons why a new model is needed, following on from their in-depth research in the Not Fit for Purpose report. And now that organisation has taken a next step in the journey and is looking at how business can be used to challenge the corporate model entirely and how society can go beyond corporations. So we'll finish up with these interviews with Amelia explaining where their next project is taking them. Yeah, I mean, I have some hope actually that there's like a lot of energy right now going into creating more lasting, more transformative um, solutions. And it's not to say that they're not going to be without challenge, but I do think that if we can put, you know, as much energy as we have been putting into kind of um, understanding why these things are broken into then also starting to build new solutions. I think that's kind of, that's, that's where we, where we need to be, which is to say exactly as you kind of summed up, I think there's a, a lot more awareness now of the ways in which these systems are broken. And I think my encouragement is to bring as many kind of allies to bear into the space then of not just doing this work of resisting and documenting and articulating where things are failing, but also like really starting to learn about and contribute to this incredible resilient grassroots movement of people who are building these alternatives. Um, and that can be anything from, as you have mentioned, like worker social responsibility. Um, through to, as I said, like, you know, more and more people in the US, in the UK, and certainly we have so much more to learn from the global south are, are really adopting whole new business structures. Another thing that came up for us when we were thinking like and sort of really doing this work over many years was that, you know, the root of the problem, as far as we really see it, if you're going to go right, 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 right back to like what's the very sort of first kind of chain in the reaction that leads to all of these problems, we see as the corporate structure itself, which is, you know, recognizing how decisions are made in companies and for what reason and where sort of profit uh, goes. And what I mean by that is that companies are set up now in such a way that it's shareholders who are the center of everything, you know, and the obligation of a company is to act in the best interests of shareholders. What that's translated to is, you know, companies that are therefore trying to maximize profit 
at all term, at all at all costs. What it means, what how does that what how does that actually how does that translate and how does that occur? That occurs by a company, particularly these big brands, having a board, right? The highest level decision making in a company is the board. The board is directly voted on by these by shareholders. So the shareholders appoint the board. The board then sort of appoints management or key management. And it's that management that often are involved in the key day-to-day decisions, but they're thinking about the board and whether you know they're delivering good results for the board and the board's thinking about shareholders, right? And all, all of what shareholders are often thinking about, not necessarily always, but is profit. Like they've invested, they want money back. And this entire structure... I mean, many of us, it's like, it's obvious. This is, this is part of the problem. This is a key part of the problem. And so we began to recognize, look, unless from a human rights perspective, we start to challenge the corporate form itself and start to really recognize that's a human rights problem, we're always going to be in a whack-a-mole situation of just responding to abuses because, you know, management are simply completely disconnected from the realities on the ground. They are not having to work at factories. They're not having to live in communities in which their decisions are being made. And so they're totally sheltered from these decisions um, and the impacts of their decisions. And so there can, of course, be pressure put on them in certain ways. But ultimately, they're not the ones whose lived experience is sort of playing out. And so they're not even, you know, they're not even alert often to the consequences of decisions that they make. And so for us, it's like thinking then from a human rights perspective about challenging the corporate form and this idea of kind of, for us, what's become this idea of shifting power, what we realized is that until companies uh, like center workers and communities in the way that they're governed and the way that they're owned, we're always going to be in this situation of having both rights abuses and massive economic inequality. So what is actually doing that? You know, what does that look like? And what does this project for us arrived at? You know, we actually think that there needs to be, there need to be new rights, right? The rights, the set of rights that we've got at the moment, they all assume a corporate structure and corporate structure as is. So it's really important that we have, you know, basic rights and laws around labor and working conditions and um, whatnot. But what we think needs to be there and more fundamental to kind of all of this is not just thinking about appropriate wages and working conditions, but actually thinking about the idea that workers should have a right to influence and have input in the decisions that impact their working lives. And in addition to that, they should have a right to share in the profit that they help to generate. We're not going to get there overnight, but we, I believe we're not going to see any of the kind of deep transformative change that we need to see um, in terms of actually changing working conditions in a long-term sustainable way until we change the corporate structure in this way too, and until we start trying to. So for us, we've um, developed out this idea of shifting the shifting, what we're calling the shifting power project or this idea of shifting power. And we've been spending some time coming up with figuring out what this idea of these two rights, essentially, which are essentially the right to kind of share in profit and ownership, but also the right to control and, and govern what this should look like. So we're starting to look at what models are out there that go some way to, to trying to implement or implementing these rights. You know, there's actually a lot of examples of businesses that are trying to be a lot more effectively worker-centric in the way that they're governed and owned. And these range from anything from, you know, at one end of the spectrum, you have worker-owned cooperatives, um, the largest of which is uh, has almost 70,000 or some 
the numbers at certain mm. years, put it at 80,000 workers. It's the fifth largest uh, company in Spain, and it's a Spanish company um, called Mondragon. And it, mm. it is incredible the way that it has developed out across all sorts of different industries, doing all sorts of different work with supply chain kind of issues. It's not perfect, but it does demonstrate that worker co-ops, which I think often people assume have to be small, could nonetheless you know, be could could govern and could operate in scale and size in the way that we think of you know major corporations being the only thing that could exist there. So there's kind of well, there's worker co-ops, but there's also you know all sorts of other approaches that a lot of people don't know as well. Employee-owned trusts, um, employee stock ownership plans, models of what's called co-determination, in which workers have so a certain number of seats um, on a board that they get to sort of vote um, each year on their board representatives. Um, it's kind of common in Europe. It's a really analyzing like which of these models get us towards this kind of transformative like outcome of, of workers really being in charge of and owning the companies and places where they work. I would love to see us get to the place where we have, you know, supply chains fully built up of worker cooperatives. I think there's a lot of folks in the global South um, who have worker owned businesses and have had them for a long time. They're often really informal. And I would love to see like in the, in the global North, there'd be more worker co-ops that we can buy from who are sourcing from worker co-ops in the South. And for that to become like its own ecosystem of um, cooperatively owned kind of um, businesses. And I think that's the solution. And there's yes barriers to doing it. But actually, the more I've looked into it, a massive part of the barriers exist around, I really stem from effectively lack of awareness and misconceptions about how these things operate. And that often means that they can't get finance. It means that we uh, like misunderstand and think that they have to be, you know, have to be small. They can't operate at scale. It means that, you know, we don't even know what's a worker co-op and what's not. Um, and I think just starting to demystify a lot of these things and starting to educate our friends and allies about this, you know, there's no reason, for example, I think why unions aren't starting to demand uh, a seat at the table, um, by which I mean a seat like on a board and also a share of ownership in addition to wage increases. You know, there's no reason why when, you know, folks are putting forward like progressive agendas for change, for example, here in the, in the US, you know, the Green New Deal, why would we be giving subsidies for green companies if they're going to be owned by shareholders? Shouldn't we be subsidizing companies or giving extra subsidies for companies that are owned by communities and workers? And so I think just like a lot more exploration and coherency and engagement and encouragement of folks who are out there who are building worker and community-owned enterprises and supporting them and lifting them up and creating policy solutions that kind of shines a spotlight on them because they're there, they work, but they're only going to work best if there's more of them and there's more understanding of them and there's less kind of, you know, less concern or confusion about whether or not these things can, can help address change. So, are large companies really the good corporate citizens that they make out to be? No! Or are they willingly ignoring the social injustices that we know occur in their supply chains? Yes! I thought we made that clear, guys. The information is out there now. Actions speak louder than words. Let's see if these brands put their money where their greenwashed fingertips and mouths are and actually do adopt better models like WSR. 
So is there anything no sweats are actively doing that provides a better model than these corporate ethical washing initiatives? So with No Sweats T-Shirt Project, we are engaged with trade unions on the ground to uh, make sure that working conditions at the factory are up to scratch and if just to engage them and see if anything else further we can do to support them. We're trying to get a WSR programme around in factory in Bangladesh, but it has to be worker-led. So they have to, you know, initiate it and uh, develop it as they wish. It's something we're working on. And we're always campaigning. So get involved with No Sweats. Visit nosweat.org.uk or look up No Sweat on social media. Get your favourite bands to use No Sweat t-shirts. Write to them. Tell them about us. We've got a benefit gig coming up in February 2023. Uh, if you're listening to this podcast after then, then you snoozed and loosed. This has been the No Sweat podcast. I've been Nav. I've been Maisha. And I've been Andrew. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>